0: Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always, and we have a guest on who I've been following from afar through his publication, which he is the editor at, First Things. Um, but more recently, I was recommended the book Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West. The guest is R.R. Reno. Uh, it is great to get you on and talk to you, and um, thank you, first off, for the first, first things. I think what you guys put out there is fantastic work. Why don't, for those people who aren't familiar Unpack what you guys do at First Things.
1: We are the voice of religious conservatives in public and cultural debates in the United States. And I would say not just the United States, but really th- throughout the West. We have uh, influence in the European world and readers in Australia and throughout the Anglosphere. Uh, so, so, you know, my goal is to make sure that we try to leaven. Uh, public uh, debate in America, uh, you know, with a religious and social conservative perspective.
0: Yeah, and I wish more um, of the social uh, religious conservatives would aspire to write at first things. That would be, I think that would be a, a good starting spot instead of some of what we see. Um, okay, so the book, as I mentioned, is "Return of the Strong Gods." What is a strong god? Who is a strong god? What, how how you get the title? Kind of break that down for folks.
1: It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the objects of our love and loyalty. So, a strong God is something that arouses in us a sense of devotion, so that we're willing to make sacrifice in service of, of that of that God. Now, obviously, as a Christian, I only believe in one God, the one true God. Uh, you know, the God of Abraham, Jacob, uh, Jacob uh, um, and so we it's only meant as a metaphor. And I drew it from Emile Durkheim, who is a sociologist who wrote more than a hundred years ago. And he used it as a metaphor to describe these organizing uh, commitments within a society. And so the strong, the God and strong language is meant to evoke for the reader a sense of things that are powerful forces of um, common purpose in a society
0: okay and so you're you're using the metaphor and you're saying that they were, were returning so where have these strong gods been and what happened to them
1: well the a thesis of the book it's a it's a book that um has a first three chapters are an historical treatment of what i call the post-war era 1945 now ryan you're young so you you might think post-war, which war?
0: Yeah, right, which war?
1: (laughs) I'm I'm an older kind of guy, and so for me, post-war always meant when I was a kid, post-World War II. And so the historical thesis of the book is that 1914, the beginning of World War I, to 1945, let's say, let's call it Auschwitz, from the Battle of the Somme to Auschwitz. The West underwent, certainly the continent of Europe, underwent a kind of multiple spasms of violence, destruction, and disorder. So even when they, when things were at peace in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, Europe was racked by ideological conflict. You know, the Russian Revolution, 1919, the Weimar Republic in Germany, which failed the Spanish Civil War in the mid-1930s, the rise of Hitler, Mussolini. We could just go on and on. Mm. And my view is that we, the West, organized its cultural life, its political life, to prevent a relapse into these periods, this kind of violence and destruction. And the consensus view is that people's passionate commitments and convictions make them vulnerable to demagogues, and it, it causes them to hurl themselves into pitched battles over the future of their society. So the aim was to dial down the temperature of politics okay. and this was what I would call what I call the open society imperative or the open society consensus. And so this meant banishing the strong gods and emphasizing um, tolerance, non-judgmentalism, mm-hmm. openness, inclusion, and of course by the time we get to uh, our, our era, we get diversity as a as a weakening word. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to consolidate too strongly. Um, you, you want to have uh, you want you want to promote diversity, which is a word doesn't really kind of what does it really mean? But I think in my book, I show that it it is a placeholder for this open society imperative.
0: You, un- you in the first couple chapters you talk about history. You you bring up Karl Popper. And you spent a lot of time with him. And I was kind of – kind of, I felt inadequate because I was like, wait, I haven't heard anybody spend a lot of time on, uh, on Popper. Uh, and then I was in a meeting last night, and I mentioned some of the book and the interview and um, some, some folks who would know who you are, and they kind of follow that circle. And And I said, yeah, he talks about this Popper guy. And so the person I told him to has a scientific background. He goes, oh, Yeah. Popper's really big in scientific, he went on this whole tangent about stuff I don't know about. I was like, how have I missed Popper? So is it just me, or is he, because there's a lot of weight given um, in the book to what he said and how it influenced his culture, Um, at least from the way you write it. Am I the only one who missed him, or what happened here?
1: I chose Popper. He was influential, Open Society and its Enemies, which is the book that that I discussed in the first chapter, was extremely influential in the media post-war environment. But I chose the book more because I felt like he was a particularly clear example of this consensus. Now a consensus, a social consensus, always has multiple sources and multiple expressions. And so it would be wrong to think that Karl Popper invented or was the sole spokesman for the post-war consensus but he's a particularly clear example of this and so what you get in popper is you get he wrote the book during the war he was Austrian he fled Austria to escape the Nazis wound up in New Zealand wrote this book uh, as um, a kind of critique you know how can we prevent fascism from ever ha- coming back again and so he 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 argued that Effectively, strong convictions are the root cause of fascism, Nazism, and communism. So totalitarianism has its origin in what he calls the closed society mentality. And it's fascinating because he identifies Plato, the founder of the Western philosophical tradition, as a proponent of the closed society and therefore, in a sense, a crypto-fascist. Um, as well as Hegel as his other as his other adversary in that book. So two of the most influential figures in Western culture. So you look at that and you think, huh, multiculturalism, anti-Western ideology in the universities, which we are now, we feel it in full force, it has its origins in in Popper. I don't think he would have endorsed anything like what we see today in the universities, but it's the nature of of uh he was he was he wrote in a particularly impassioned and exaggerated way in that book and so i thought it opened up the consensus the social cultural side and then i talk about friedrich hayek as his kind of companion and he from the element of economic theory side uh, argues for a similar idea of openness now cashed out in terms of uh, free market uh, economics so
0: one of the things i've I struggle where to place it at is, is when you're studying these great minds of history, however far back you want to go, Plato or Popper or, you know, Friedman or whoever, how much emphasis do you give on the work that they did then? Um, and then how much should you try to build upon it? Because um, there are plenty of times about history where people have had good ideas that worked in time, but as you move forward, it's like, okay, well, we need to reexamine this, maybe go back to the core, maybe shave off some stuff. Um, are we? Is part of our problem that we don't go back and re-examine the core idea, and it's kinda, it kind of it kind of gets muddled down as we go through history.
1: No, I think in the case of Popper, to a lesser extent, Hayek, but certainly in the case of Popper, he was using ideas in order to um, achieve a political goal, and that political goal was to um, create this anti-fascist consensus. And anytime you take philosophy and you shift it, Karl Marx said that. It used to be that the purpose was to understand the world for philosophy, but now its purpose is to change the world. That, to me, perverts the life of the mind, and it never ends well. Um, so so in that respect, I think Popper um, uh, reflects, he, he criticizes Marxism uh, vociferously in that book, but I think in a way he echoes Marx's uh, transformation of philosophy and, I would say, a kind of timeless inquiry into a tool to reconstruct society.
0: So one more question on Popper, just from modern day perspective, who might, like you hear of Marxists and Marxism and stuff like that, but I don't know of anyone who's a Popperism, or, you know, I know people who talk about Hayek a lot. Who are the modern day people that would uh, ascribe to directly to his teachings that if people wanted to follow more about, you know, modern day uh, what Popper said and then who's working on it today. Whereas like with the libertarians, you could say, you know, Friedman or Hayek or, or whatever.
1: George Soros. He named his major organization, the Open Society Institute. So he, he was a student of Popper's yeah. in the right. late 40s and early 50s, deeply influenced by, by Popper. So yeah. I, Popper is by no means a, a, a kind of dead letter. And I think that uh, in his book, he identifies, um, um, metaphysics as a enemy of the open society, and I think we see this in John Rawls, who says that we should have a politics that's we should ha- we should have a liberalism that's political, not metaphysical. That's a direct echo of Popper. Popper thinks that we should have a nominalist view, that is to say, we should that we can't get to the essence of things. I think this is now the consensus view in in uh, in educational circles, um, so people may not use Popper's specific vocabulary, but he was—he—he—you can read "Open Society" enemy and its enemies, and you can see our present multicultural, morally relativistic uh, educational culture um, in Nuche in a in, in its embryonic form.
0: Yeah, and that's what was so—that's I found so interesting is that you you start pointing out all these things, and then. Again, you just don't hear a lot of people walk around talking about Popper. You're the first person, like I said, I could be just completely missed the boat here, and I'm happy to take that L, but it was just it was kind of stunning. I hear a lot of other names, you're like, Oh yeah, okay. But but that one was kind of startling, if you will, to go to, to Popper. And so um but anyways, um let's talk about where we're at in twenty twenty one. Um, so we've kind of had, we had these, hey, we want to, I think you have a quote, there's a quote in here, at least you, you said, that the goal from Popper of so these guys was said, never, never again go back to totalitarianism. Um, it, despite that, it feels like we don't know what that word means. We don't know how to stop it. And we don't know where to look for that anymore.
1: You know, one of the things that got me going on this book is, uh, you know, when Trump appeared on the scene in 2016, good grief, you read commentators, fascism. Hitler, Mussolini—it was the paragon of subtlety to say he was a he was a, a Franco, but it was as if everything was in the 1930s, um, and it made me think, wow, I mean, this is night. We're talking that was a, that was 70 years ago. Um, you know, my father is 87 years old, and he was only seven years old in 1940. Uh, so, why are we still thinking about politics and about the problems facing our society in terms that were forged 70 more than 70 years ago? And that's what got me thinking. Wow, we must be in the grip of a very powerful cultural consensus that says this, these are the leading problems facing our society. And I, so I thought about it. So, what do people say? What's the leading problem? in our society. Well, racism, exclusion, uh, xenophobia, you know, the, we can go on and on. Those are all motifs, basically, of saying that people, they're they over-consolidated. They're too unified um, and, and against the other. And I look around me and I think, whoa, I look out the window of my office here in New York City and think, we live in a society that's disintegrating,
0: mm-hmm.
1: not a society that's Overconsolidating, as some wag put it, a Hungarian sociologist's people are not marching in the street in search of the final solution. They're marching in the streets in search of the final sale.
0: Mm. We live in
1: an atomized consumer society with very few unifying themes, unifying loyalties, and commitments.
0: I want to unpack, I have a question for you, but you mentioned atomized. And unpack that for folks who aren't familiar with that term and how that plays into what you're talking about.
1: Well, I mean, so you would say that a person is atomized when they don't have a strong like, in-group. They don't have a strong identity group. And I think identity politics is, uh, has emerged in the last uh, decade or two as a compensation, because people want to belong. Mm-hmm. That's one of the strong theses of the book, mm-hmm. is that uh, human beings are sociable. We're sociable animals and that we want to belong. And the open society project doesn't offer us a strong sense of belonging. So we gravitate towards what I think are these ersatz kinds of belonging. I belong because of my skin color. I belong because of my sexual organs or I belong because of my sexual preferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these strike me as extremely um thin and unsatisfying. They don't actually give us anything to admire or to try to live up to. And and uh, Whereas thick forms of solidarity give us something to live up to. So we have heroes, we have mm-hmm. a story about the, our country and we have myths, I mean, in the positive sense of the term that inspire us and we try to live up to them. That to me is the ennobling kind of solidarity as opposed to But I think of as a as a potentially perverting kind of solidarity, which I think is promoted by identity politics.
0: Uh, uh, Identity politics. um, uh, I heard someone point out a few months ago, they said that, you know, uh, I think it was Kennedy and Johnson said, well, Johnson was on Kennedy's ticket. And he goes, that's identity politics, but we just didn't call it then back that back, back then because Kennedy needed Texas, um, and, and they were trying to make this argument that, that identity politics have always been around. Um, it, it's just that we didn't focus on it so much. So, a, would you agree with that thesis uh, that it's always been how we've operated politically? We just didn't talk about it. Uh, but B, is it, and it and B, is it the hyper focus? Maybe that's the problem now.
1: Identity politics, like I said, uh, look, of course. I mean, you people have different identities. I'm from a certain place. Sure. You know, uh, people from Texas have a strong sense of the greatness of the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, every Texan I've ever known has reminded me that in the Constitution of the state of Texas, is the right to secede.
0: That's right. Uh, and, uh, which, of course, caused me to laugh.
1: And I always tell people, you know, there's, um, I remind them of what General Sherman said about Texas. Do you know what he said about Texas? No, I do not. Well, he was there for the uh, staging for the mexican-american war mm-hmm. was, there was not a lot in texas at the time but he said if i owned hell in texas i'd live in hell and rent out texas um, <laughs> so not everybody loves texas so um, but I personally am um, not a texan not mm-hmm. even close but i every my heart thrills every time I, I i come to texas because if it weren't for texas we'd be, we'd be ruled by people from california <laughs> so, so, but when Johnson's on the ticket, he, that's an identity, right? Texas, he went, Texas vote. And also, I mean, Southern votes, broad broadly, and, you know, that's a, that is, that is an historical identity. It's not a racial identity. It's not a gender identity. And one of the arguments I make in Return to the Strong Gods is that people are, they desire to unite around shared loves and loyalties. And they're going to do it whether we want them to or not. Karl Popper be damned. And the question is whether they're going to unite around perverse loves and loyalties or whether they're going to unite around noble loves and loyalties. I happen to think that being a Texan and being being very proud of being a Texan is a noble, an ennobling thing and not a perverting thing. Um, Whereas I think that uniting around sexual preferences or you know uh, chromosomes is ultimately a debasing kind of solidarity, not a, a ennobling kind of solidarity.
0: Okay. So one of the things I've, I've often figured out or tried to figure out how to think about is this idea of how propaganda impacts culture. And so if you go to like wartime propaganda, especially historically, it was very much to make a character of the enemy because it kind of lessens the humanity of what's going on. Uh, now we just we're just sending drones to bomb people at random. We don't think about um, how much do you think do you attribute to propaganda um, throughout these post-war era because we had the Red Scare, we had McCarthyism, you know, we we fought the commies all over the world, and um, and a lot of that it seems looking back was more propaganda than there was really anything there. Or do you think that that is a descendant from this ideal? That these people really believe that they were trying to prevent the spread of the, the, the communism.
1: I mean, a consensus is not propaganda, strictly speaking. You know, uh, uh, the I talk about James Bryant Conant, who was the president of Harvard University, who um, established a committee for education for a free society. So that was right in the nineteen in nineteen forty four before that was ended. So our leadership class in America. Recognized that we had to prepare for winning the peace and not just winning the war, and so they—they they were earnest. Whereas propaganda is cynical. I, I would restrict propaganda to cynical manipulation of people to get them to do what you want. And Conant, when he formed that committee, was sincerely trying to figure out how to how to balance the, the appropriate role of authority in society with a greater element of freedom in society. So so you wanted to discourage people from becoming mindless followers of propaganda. How do you do that? Well, you gotta encourage them to think for themselves. Okay, I mean, I I think it was a noble project, but as I say in the book, the problem was that uh, the freedom side, uh, the questioning authority side from the very beginning had greater prestige and so it was only a matter of time before they gained the upper hand. And, you know, so you can see how the multicultural, there should be no culture that has authority. Um, the Western canon should not be obligatory. That was an inevitable outcome, I think, of the cultural moment that opponent stepped into in the immediate post-war environment. I would have supported it. Yeah. Uh, it's the nature of the human condition that when faced with the crisis, you try to meet it for every action, there's a counteraction. You try to meet it with a counteraction. And then over time that counteraction creates its own perverse consequences. We're kind of doomed as fallen, you know, as fallen uh, uh, creatures, you know, the fall means that we're never gonna find that perfect equilibrium in society. And we started out in 1945, I think, correctly uh, trying to counter the collectivist mentality of the ideological projects of fascism and communism, but we wind up in the 21st century with an impoverished language of solidarity and an inability to, our leadership class, an inability to provide ordinary people with with sound, humane, unifying uh, ideals.
0: So one of the things that you uh, kind of run in the U.S. China circles is you start to hear that China is the next. As a matter of fact, that if you listen to the previous podcast, which had not published but will be published by the time this one goes live, uh, one of the guests is arguing that China has very much the kind of Nazi Germany mentality as far as they're they're moving, they're expanding their borders, they're moving out. And I, I don't I don't necessarily agree with that that rhetoric for a couple of reasons I don't get to here. But but we do have that hair trigger to always be looking for that. It feels like. Um, is that a good thing in your mind or not? I mean, one of the
1: one of the warnings in the book is uh, beware using the nineteen thirties as a prism through which to interpret everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think as Mark Twain had said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it r- often rhymes. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot to that. We can certainly learn from the past, but the kind of challenges that we face as a country, both domestically and abroad, are different. From the ones that our grandparents and great grandparents—really talking about great grandparents—based right. uh, in the first half of the twentieth century, and and so we need to think historically. That's hugely important, but we also need to avoid using the past as a kind of, you know, immobile, you know, template that we jam everything into. And so I would agree with you. I think I think it's wrong to think of contemporary China either in terms of Stalinist Russia or in terms of Nazi Germany. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of beast. Um, and a lot of a lot of people thought that, you know, after the end of the Cold War, if we engage China and we bring capitalism, we'll make them more like us. Mm-hmm. And there's an element of truth to that. Um, and and so we we're looking at a at a Confucian culture that has adopted Many of the um, uh, positive and well productive qualities of capitalism. And, and I think it's wrong to think I mean, not fascism and communism are, are perversions of the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and whatever China was going to represent in the 21st century is, is going to have deep roots in its own cultural history, which which is not which does not is not derived from that.
0: And it, it seems like to the American side of the equation that our biggest enemy is inside the borders of the U.S. Some of the things that you've laid out already, um, it, or, 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 or that's what will ultimately put the major cracks into the foundation. Because um, you go back to during the war, pre-war era, the ability to rally the country behind this unifying message. Um, it doesn't feel like America's in the spot to, um, to get back to that anytime soon.
1: I mean, I'm an American optimist, but I do share with you the view that the greatest threat to the West is the West. Mm. Um, you know, on the one hand, we're kind of all triumphant globally. You know, if you think about now, natu- uh, natural the natural sciences are a global phenomenon and that really is everywhere, and it's a Western um, a Western product, and that our market economies are also... Largely everywhere, however, however much they may be modified and co opted by authoritarian governments. And so we, we really did win the Cold War. Uh, but I remember after 9 11, I had arguments with some of my friends that thought, you know, they came up with this term, Islamofascism, and this was a great threat. And I said, no, 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 no. Uh, they had no, they cannot actually, you know, Muslim ter- terrorists cannot actually um, threaten our hegemony globally, right? But, but unrestricted immigration to Europe certainly could. And that's not a terrorist, you know, didn't cause that. It's it's policy decisions in the West. And those policy decisions have their origins or they, they take their legitimacy from the post-war consensus, this open society consensus. And uh, like I said, I'm not one of those people who thinks you know, was a mistake from the very beginning. No, I don't think that's true at all. But over time, it becomes a, its own kind of ideological prison that we have to free ourselves from and actually think, we need to think practically prudently to try to solve the problems that face us right now. As a country, when people talk about diversity as our strength, which is a, it's a way of putting, you know, uh, lipstick on a pig, uh, for diversity is not our strength. Diversity is our challenge. And I am an American optimist. I believe that we can, in fact, unite around a nation after two generations of dramatic uh, demographic change because of immigration. I believe we can, in fact, actually unite as a people. Uh, but we're going to have to actually put our minds to how to do that. It's not going to happen automatically.
0: Yeah, just one comment on the diversity thing. If diversity is a strength, um, just if you if you just if someone were to say diversity is a strength. Then that would be very much a free market argument, right? Because the, the market creates a bunch of diverse solutions, whereas the people who are pro diversity seem to be more restrictive, more socialistic, which is not a very diverse mindset. So is it is, is, the only one that kind of catches the the the, um, the paradoxical view there?
1: Uh, well, but I mean, you want you want uh, diversity for some things, you know, maybe to find certain. Solutions to technological problems. Lots of people working on it from different angles, but you don't want diversity with respect to um, uh, social unity.
0: No, we, what I'm saying is is that it, to your, I think what, if I understand what you're saying is that we throw out the word diversity, 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 and we never explore the impacts of that. And my my simple point was, if you want to say that all things being diverse is the best thing, then why do you like a form of government that is less diverse by nature, like? That's the, the the crowd who promotes the universal term uh, diversity. Actually, when it comes to the market, wants less diversity. That's the the irony there.
1: Maybe. It's a it's a weasel word, isn't it?
0: Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So I think we I think we agree on on the beyond that. It's just more of it's just weird that hey diversity diversity is like well, okay well then let's have a billion companies doing a billion things. That's that's diversity, not not the state uh institutions. Okay, let's talk um, a little bit about populism. Um, define it, define the roots of it for us, um, and do you see it as a good thing or a threat, or how do you unpack that, or are you neutral on it?
1: Populism, strictly speaking, is any political situation where the many rebel against the leadership of the few. And so populism can be a left, it can have left versions and it can have right versions. It's simply a situation in a democratic society where the ruling class loses the trust of the people whom they govern. And I think clearly we're in that situation in the United States. We On the left, we have, you know, Black Lives Matter protests in the streets, people claiming systemic racism, you know, basically saying that the people who've been running the country for the last 50 years have failed to solve the problems that the left identifies as uh, the key problems. You have people on the right who I think Trump brought this out. They feel that they've been betrayed by the ruling class, that their economic interests have been sold out and that they have been derided by the ruling class as to use Hillary Clinton's memorable word, deplorables. So left and right mm-hmm. we've got an increasing distrust of the ruling class In our society. That's obviously populism. What do I think about it? Uh, Do I support it? Uh, I think that I think that um, I don't agree with the left's judgment about the nature of the failures, mean the radical left's judgment. Mm -hmm. But I think we, when Trump in his campaigns in 2016, he would say our country is being run by very stupid people. And I remember laughing when I first thought that it was such a ridiculous thing to say, but the more I thought about it, stupid is not the word I would use, but it, our country is being run by people who kind of screwed things up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, the, I, I supported the Iraq war. I'm part of the ruling class. You know, I supported the Iraq war, but it turned out to be a catastrophic mistake where we squandered our reputation of invincibility in, in a, a decade ago that we may never recover, um, and that we spent trillions of dollars with nothing to show for it. Uh, Okay, mistake. Everybody makes mistakes. We made a bet that by engaging China economically and making concessions to China, that we would draw them into the global system that we dominate. We lost that bet. Uh, And, of course, you know, the emblematic moment was to vote for uh, China to come into the WTO. We screwed that up. Um, We now have declining life expectancy for working class white Americans. In fact, which which is so extreme that it's actually pulling down life expectancy for the entire country. This is a function or a consequence of cultural deregulation uh, promoted by our governing elite. And how do we respond to the problem of close to 100,000 people dying of drug overdose death? We are now legalizing marijuana. So culturally, in terms of foreign policy, the Iraq war, the people I'm a baby boomer, the baby boomers took over from the greatest generation in the 1990s and they have failed miserably. Uh, the rich have gotten richer, everybody else has gotten poorer. We all know the data on income inequality which is even worse if you look at uh, wealth as opposed to income. Mm-hmm. We look at baby boomers at age 30 and their net worth. We look at millennials at age 30 and net worth. Again, these are, these are damning statistics. Um, and so I, I mean, I'm ranting here, Ryan, as you can see. And I just think that I, I believe, I mean, I'm opposed to populism uh, insofar as it, it can often just be angry and destructive. But I am I, I think that our governing elite need to sober up and take the full measure of these mistakes and correct course.
0: I think I wrote last year and I won't get it right, but something to the effect of the problem with populism is you finally get the elite on your side and you pretty much pardon whatever they do. And so, you know, if you look at like Trump, there was um, good things Trump did, bad things Trump did. But, a, but the diehard Trump supporter, man they were dahar, like it's 40 chests, And it's like, okay, I'm sorry, he's <laughs> just wrong here. Or, you know, wait, hold on. I thought you were anti-tariffs. Now tariffs are good. It, 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 so it feels like populism takes um, political partisanship and just puts it on steroids because these people who feel isolated now feel like they have a rep- representative. And so I think um, it's good. I think maybe we agree here. It's good in the sense of sometimes you have to kind of let the establishment know that, there are other ways to get people in office, but the but my fear is that it almost deadens the senses once you get your guy or gal in office.
1: Like it, it's the nature of democratic politics. <laughs> I mean, and it, it becomes worse in a populist moment because people's emotions are um, are at, at a fever pitch. Mm-hmm. It's also a time of change, and so you know, most of us we take our political views uh, wholesale, not retail. So you're a Republican, you just right. easily take the whole package. You don't think much about it. You mm-hmm. think about the things that are in your domain, but you accept the rest pretty much. I'm a pro-life guy. What do I think about free markets? It's uh, yeah, probably good, but I'm really with the Republicans because of the pro-life. Sure. Right? So this wholesale thing. Well, things are being scrambled now, and so people are disoriented, and so they throw their lot behind charismatic figure. This is what people fear in a populist era. Mm -hmm. And that that charismatic figure abuses the trust that has been vested in you. And uh, is this a danger? Of course it's a danger. Um, What is our alternative? Uh, Well, find a slightly more responsible (laughs) paladin for populist anger.
0: Okay. So you mentioned this briefly, but you are probably the best guest I've ever had on to talk about something like this. You mentioned maybe um, the family's not growing at the same rate. Uh, I don't think I remember that exact term, but unpack real quick. I know we got about five, seven more minutes left. Unpack the importance of the family growing families and how that factors into larger society. Cause you also said um, you made a comment about open borders. And there is an argument to be made that if you aren't above replacement level, you will have to open your borders. Um, and I'm not trying to take a side of the borders debate for the podcast. I'm just saying, like, strictly speaking, mathematically speaking, if you don't get above replacement level, um, you will have to import uh, people to keep your economy going. So g- give us your thoughts on that.
1: I'm not sure the latter is true.
0: Okay. Um,
1: you know, uh, the Danish are not bringing new people in. so the jury's out on exactly how economies will respond to a slow population decline. So okay. let's just put that to the side. Families, up, yeah. families, I think that, as I say in the book, you know, this is back to your, our, our observation that, hey, a populist moment's dangerous, right? You get mm-hmm. demagogues, people can be swept up into these political passions. So what are the stabilizing forces? Now, typically what people do is that the open society's consensus says, you prevent people from becoming fanatical by deconstructing or critiquing their commitments. Again, I think that this this doesn't work. Uh, instead, people are moderated by um, by what I would call stabilizing uh, commitments, stabilizing loves. So, how do you restrain the political realm? Then you have to strengthen the non-political realm. And there are two areas that pinion politics: one from below and one from above. The family opinions from below, the faith communities, opinion from above. Uh, You know, you can talk about politics around the dining room table, sure, sure, sure. But family life is not, is pre-political, it's not political. And, you know, I'm sorry, but you're not going to find a lot of rioter married men in riots. And it's not just because their wives won't let them go out at night. It's because they've got other things on their mind, other commitments, other responsibilities. As a result, it's not just that uh, that they're not swept up into Mm -hmm. the ideological passions of the moment. The same way for religious faith. Uh, Religious faith is a consolation in the face of evil, and it's a constant reminder of the futility of the affairs of men. And so that also is a guard against uh, political fanaticism. So I think if we want to have a stable, non-fanatical, non-ideological society, we have to strengthen the family and we have to uh, strengthen religious communities. And how we do this in our society, we don't, I'm not a command and control guy. Certainly our first amendment doesn't allow for government, direct government efforts in the area of religion, but we can do indirectly through political means, try to, encourage family formation and also give maximal scope, at least the very least protect religious freedom Um, or, but many aspects of uh, school scholarship funds and so forth can also be used to uh, strengthen religious schools.
0: Okay. Again, the book is return of the strong gods. Uh, You have several other books out. Uh, I'll link to, uh, I guess your Amazon author's page so people can check that out. If that's the best spot to get them also, we'll link to first things. And as I said, to start the show, if you are a conservative religious um, person, you should aspire to write to like First Things puts out. It, it's fantastic com, uh, content. I love reading it. It's um, it's 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 well thought out, and so I, it 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 pushes the discussion forward in my opinion. So I'm very appreciative of what you guys uh, are doing up there. And so um, anything else we need to plug or promote before we get you out of here today?
1: No, I thank I thank you very much for those kind words about First Things. Uh, we always need more people on the team, so. Listeners should go to firstthings.com and open up uh, the subscription page and plunk down for a subscription to our very fine magazine.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Um, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll be back. Uh, I think we got a next show next week. So we'll talk to